Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Recover Everything podcast, where we have honest discussions about everything in recovery. I'm your host, Chris West. Go to our website, recovereverything.com, to learn more about the show and, and your host. Follow us on social media at Recover Everything. Then listen and subscribe to us on all your major streaming platforms. Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, you know. And give us a rating on iTunes. Apparently that uh, helps the podcast out, eventually. So I'm told. Our guest on this episode is Alvin Elliott. He is a recovery advocate. Alvin is doing the hard work and has been for a really long time. And not only that, this guy has a wealth of information that is extremely useful, extremely helpful, and extremely intelligent. Alvin knows what he's talking about from recovery language to recovery legislation, pretty much everything under the umbrella of recovery. My co-host today is Chelsea Money. Enjoy. Jokes, Alvin? Hmm? Do you know any jokes? You know a joke? <sighs> yeah. Let's hear it. Okay. Um, there were these three women, they were in a um, hot tub. Okay. 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 Is it appropriate? Yes, it is. Everything is appropriate <laughs> on this podcast. And so the woman, um, there were three. One was in, from the, the Far East, one was from Europe. And one was from the uh, Appalachia region of the United States. Okay, so um, the woman who was from the Far East, her hand started to vibrate, and she touched it, and she started talking. Uh-huh. And the other two women were like, wow, that is so fascinating. You know, yes, this is where our technology is now. Okay, and the woman from Europe, um, her ear started to quiver, and she touched it and started talking. The other two women was like, wow, that is so fascinating. And she says, yes, this is where our technology has advanced in terms of cell phones, right? And so the woman from the Appalachia, she went, she, excuse me, she went to the bathroom. And when she came back, okay, the people were like, you know, you could hear people like, oh, my God, what is that? Right? <laughs> and when they came back, she had toilet paper hanging out of her butt, right? And, and she turned around. She says, oh, I must be getting a fax. <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> That's a really good one. Oh, yeah. That was a clean one. That was about as clean as they get. Really? <laughs> Maybe later you can around. tell me yeah, a not so clean one. Not so clean one, yeah. yeah. Uh, welcome to Recover Everything. I'm your host, Chris West. Uh, co-host today is Chelsea Money. Hello there. And on the show we have Alvin Elliott. Hello, everybody. Alvin, what do you do? I am a recovery advocate. I'm a person in long-term recovery. And what that means is uh, for the last 32 years, I haven't had a drink or a drug. 32 years. 32 years wow. in a row. It's a long time. Yes. I am also a peer recovery coach. Um, I work with the Recovery Pack, which is a nonpartisan group. And I also do, I'm a field registrar with Clark County um, Board of Elections. So... I wear many hats in the community here in Las Vegas. Fair enough. And an all-around good person. So you do a lot in the 
recovery community, it seems like. Absolutely. Before we get into all that, I'd like to get into your history a little bit. Okay. If you don't mind. Well, uh, where, where did you originally grow up? Where were you born? I was born in Washington, D.C. That's where I got clean. Um, mm. I got clean in 1986. Uh, went to a, That's before I was born. <laughs> Me too. I went, to, I went to a treatment facility in 1986. My story is kind of simple. Um, I started uh, using, uh, doing the era of disco. Okay. And um, Lucky you. Yeah. Um, and uh, I like to say that I went into a disco and, you know, the disco ball was flashing. Um, I let out a puff of smoke. And, you know, when the smoke cleared, I was in treatment. So um, that's the long and short of it. And then that that time frame, um, I want to say that, you know, I lost a lot of things. But the most important thing was uh, the harm that I had done to myself. Right. Um, I was married at the time. I had children at the time. Um, I was working uh, at the time. I hadn't been to work. And in months, um, my uh, addiction had taken me down into that really dark, dark place that it takes people. How old were you? when? Uh, I was 33 years old. When you, when, got when, you got, when you got clean? Yeah. I was sleeping on my mother's couch. And uh, to show her gratitude for having her allow me to stay in her home, uh, what I was doing, I was stealing out of her purse. And uh, it's not something I'm proud of, but... It's a part of my story because I, I know I may not be the only one that took advantage of their family. Sure. Uh, one of the things that I recognize from that time frame was uh, something that I say a lot is, if you dared to love me, you became my next victim. You know, so. It's a common theme, seems like. Absolutely. We tend to hurt the ones we love, right? Is that the saying, how the saying goes? Yes, we, we hurt the ones we love the most, yeah. something of that nature. But when we get to recovery, then what happens? What was the what was the thing that clicked where you needed where you uh, knew you needed help? I had a family member who uh, at the time my brother my twin brother was oh you're a twin yeah my twin you're brother actually had actually the second twin in a row oh really the last guest was a twin as well yeah you should see how similar they look like in the lineup you wouldn't be able to guess hmm. <laughs> in a lineup right Chelsea's <laughs> <laughs> like let me line these guys up um, you know it what happened was he he had found uh, the rooms. Of recovery, and um, he had bought me a book, and I'm, I had tried to read the book, but it's kind of hard to read uh, recovery literature when you're high. And and so, uh, my last day of, of of actually using, I remember I was was trying to steal this woman's purse, and um, it didn't go well. And you know, I realized that, you know, I was at the end, and I, what I wanted to do was change. I just didn't know how. And I said a prayer, um, which um, I call the dope fiend prayer. I said, God help me. And I was able to get into a treatment facility, and um, which is a 30-day program uh, back on the East Coast. Um, and they brought 12-step recovery meetings into the facility. I started um, recognizing and identifying with the recovery message, um, message of hope. And from there, I started attending uh, 12-step recovery meetings uh, once I got out. And for the, maybe for the first five, six years, you could have counted on one hand the amount of meetings uh, that I missed. And I think that was uh, a strong foundation for me. I built that foundation, you know, um, taking all of the suggestions, you know, the things that they talk about in 12-step recovery meetings, sponsorship. You became you know, a yes step. man for uh, recovery. Absolutely. I was carrying the yes. banner. Yeah. I was carrying the banner. So 
1986, how, how prevalent was it in 1986? It was not. It was, you know, recovery was different then. Um, how so? Well, you know, we, we were in the middle of the war on drugs. Okay. All right. So um, the, the issue of stigma and, you know, was you think of stigma now. Yeah, back then. Right. Yeah, back then. So people weren't talking about um, a national epidemic. What they were talking about was uh, the drug addicts. Okay. Right. And and so there was no national movement. There was no drug czar. Right. And um, I remember one of the um, more important stories that came out of Washington, D.C. was uh, the kid that sold crack to the president. Okay. And there was a guy who had sold uh, crack right across the street from the White House. And um, and that's the story. That was the, the marching orders that they had. You know, it was like, you know, lock lock people up. There was not a lot of money put in treatment. There was mm-hmm. a lot of money put in enforcement. I'll say this. One of the things that we talked about in setting this up was uh, talking about how uh, addiction is colorblind. Sure. You know, um, you know it's just... February is, is is recognized and and United States is Black History Month. Sure, right. And one of the things that when we talked about me coming on the show, I wanted to uh, go into an area where we could talk about um, you know how addiction um, has no preference. You know itself. Uh, yeah. With, yes. In terms of you know um, your skin color, uh, where you live, you know who you love, who you like, uh, those things, how much you weigh, how much hair you have or don't have, it's not a, a, a issue uh, that addiction you know takes time out for. It will attack you. It will destroy your life, no, no matter, matter what. where you come from. You know now what you know the problem you know, or the challenge for communities, at least you know when I got clean in 1986. You know, was, you know, individuals and their perception, you know, of who the drug addict was. Okay. Um, We talk about the epidemic, you know, of addiction now, but we, you know, addiction has always been a plague in communities of color. Sure. And, you know, it was, you know, we were talking about the war, right? There was, you know, we needed to, you know, have a war against the people who were using the drugs, against the people who were selling the drugs. Mm-hmm. If you got caught up in in the network of people who were using the drugs, uh, then you became a casualty of the war, right? And um, what the 12-step recovery communities were doing at the time to the best of their ability, they were providing uh, triage and, you know, and care to thus to all of us who were casualties of that war. Okay. So when I came into um, recovery, um, you know, I was not a victim, but I was a survivor. What were the barriers back then of going into treatment? I'm assuming they're much different than they are now, but what were they then? You, um, you didn't have as many facilities as you have now, um, even though a lot of people talk about the inability to get into treatment. Um, you know, you were, you know, you had, even though you had fewer people who were seeking treatment, you had, um, you also had fewer beds. Mm-hmm. Um, you had one facility, um, it was the Psych Institute of Washington, D.C., and you had other programs that were kind of like grassroots programs, mm-hmm. programs like Second Genesis. Um, you know, there was a program that was at the mental health facility. A lot of the programs and the people that I got clean with, uh, the programs that they went to, you know, those programs were connected to the local mental health facility. St. Elizabeth's Hospital 
in Washington, D.C., had a program called the KDAC program, which is one of the biggest programs in the city. Uh, but, you know, maybe 300 yards uh, across the field is where John Hinckley was housed. So you had, you know, the guy who tried to kill yeah. President Reagan yeah. and, you know, the you know the criminally insane, you know, and then, you know, 300 yards away in the building, you had uh, people who were trying mm. to get help with their addiction. So, so of um, course, it's stigmatizing, right? Yes. Is there still that connection between criminally insane and... So criminally insane is probably a politically incorrect yes. term, but I would say they found that 80% of people who have substance use disorders generally have uh, mental health disorders as well. Because I've, I've seen the dual diagnosis thing pop up a right. lot lately. Well, when I say, you know, um, um, mental, um, a person with a um, mental disorder, you know, and, and a person that has been found criminally insane by way of a court. Yes. Big you know, difference. That, that, that's a big difference. Right? I've gone to court. I've committed a crime. And, you know, I've been I've gone to a doctor and I've gotten a diagnosis. And as a result of that diagnosis, I've been, you know, ruled that, you know, I was not of, of, of sound, sound mind, mind. Mm -hmm. when I committed this crime. And that's different from a person who's suffering from a mental health disorder. Uh, or an SMI. Sure. Right. What have you seen change from 86 to now? Improvements? A lot. The was, internet. Is it, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Information, you know, is 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 power. Okay. Right? And so the information that, that is provided uh, to the person coming into recovery uh, today uh, is, uh, is just... 10 to 20 times more. You, you have more 12-step recovery meetings. Mm -hmm. You have literature um, with different 12-step recovery groups now. You know, when I came into my 12-step recovery group of choice, um, we had one book. Okay. Now we have like maybe a dozen, right? Different uh, books? Different books on not different same topics. Book. Yeah. Not 12 of the same books. No, not 12 of the same Even in book. a bunch of different languages. Yes, Right. Recovery is, recovery is, you know, you can go to a recovery meeting now anywhere in the country. Um, you have online recovery meetings. You have phone recovery meetings. Mm -hmm. I can dial a number during a certain time of day and there'll be a group of people, you know, who will start talking about recovery. Hmm. And that, you know, and the facilitator of that group may be in Chicago, but I may be in, in Las Vegas, you know, uh, and I'm listening in and I'm calling in and I'm participating in, in my recovery by phone. So that's a lot. How how long into your recovery did you start becoming an advocate and start working? Because I know it's it's encouraged. It's encouraged. Suggested, yeah. suggested to, right, right. to give back. Right. right. A lot of the 12-step uh, recovery programs, they, they advocate service, right, and service you know, to those who are in the 12-step recovery program of choice. And I've been doing that for years. I would say maybe in the last eight years, you know, my advocacy has ex has moved out in different areas where I've, you know, I've gone out to community events. I was uh, working with um, the Foundation for Recovery, which is a nonprofit organization here in Las Vegas. hey -o. <laughs> and when I first came to Las Vegas, that was the first um, time that I was doing uh, advocacy work. Uh, at all? At all, yeah. You know, because at, the, at that time, you know, I was working on my personal recovery. Mm -hmm. You know, I was, you know, supporting individuals in the community. 
And then the explosion started to happen. So in like the last 10 to 15 years, you started seeing, you know, an explosion of other uh, advocacy groups. Um, I don't know, uh, FFR is how many years old? 10 years old? 12 years old? 13 years old. So the last 10 to 15 years, you're starting to see different organizations come out of the woodwork. And that's because you've seen the changing of the attic. Okay. Right. Meaning seen the the zip code of the attic. Okay. You know, um, you know the person who uh, the attic is not just a person who lives on Martin Luther King mm-hmm. Boulevard. The attic is the person who lives in on the other side of the tracks now. Sure. Right. So you're metaphorically speaking. Yes. So what you're seeing is you're seeing, um, you know, people and families and groups of people come together. Okay, uh, trying to solve a common problem. It's not just the problem of the people on the uh, east side of the track sure. over on Martin Luther King Boulevard, but it's also the problem of the people on the west side of the track. So how do we how do we address that? You know, what do we do? You know, you woke up when you wake up one day and find out that your your son um, that you've been sending to the boarding school and sure. sending all these things now. Uh, he's smoking heroin or he's taking, um, you know, opioid medication, you know, that was used for an injury that he had. Now he's crushing those up and he's, you know, he's snorting that. So what do I do? So it's almost like, a, I don't want to say the perfect storm, uh, but um, opportunities presented themselves so that people from different, you know, social economic backgrounds, you could sit down at a table together and talk about you know the problem that the common problem that they had, and twelve step recovery meetings we've been doing that for years. Yeah, yeah, we have probably. Uh, I like to say that twelve step recovery meetings are probably the most integrated communities in America. So, what do you think the difference between service work and advocacy are? When when I'm an advocate, um, you know, I don't I'm not I don't promote you know a particular. 12-step recovery program, you know, okay. I promote pathways, Sure, you know, um, you know, so a person like I'm in my 12-step recovery program, a choice, people may have a, you know, a particular resistance to medically assisted treatment. Sure. Right. Uh, there's a policy, there's a guideline that, you know, that we work with, you know, as an advocate, you know, I'm, you know, I'm open to whatever that person's pathway is. And if his pathway is medically assisted treatment, then I am going to support that pathway. That's if his pathway is not 12 step, mm-hmm. you know, maybe he's, you know, uh, you know, he wants to go to church. Right. Or, you know, maybe he wants to be in something more faith based. Like a Buddhist. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, and so uh, as an advocate, I, I support your right, you know, to determine, you know, your, your own path, your own path in terms of your recovery uh, as a member in a uh, 12 step recovery program. You know, I'm I'm held to a certain standard of traditions um, that I that I adhere to. There is a lovely pamphlet for any listeners that are interested that are in 12-step recovery called... Advocacy and, and Anonymity. I know that the is pamphlet. That is it. Yeah. That's it. Advocacy uh, and Anonymity. So, you know, and what that speaks to is, you know, how do I speak, you know, truth to the movement, the recovery movement, when I'm a member of an anonymous program? You know, it's... I'm curious still about your question, Chelsea, about service and advocacy. So you're saying 
The service part is adhering to the traditions of a certain program. Right. And advocacy is open to math, multiple pathways. Yes. It can overlap. It can. You know, it's, it's can overlap. Like um, there are some things that, you know, that I've learned uh, by being an advocate that has opened my mind, you know, uh, to um, what I should be doing as a, um, a person who's a service member of a particular 12-step program. You know, um, mm-hmm. you know um, I think that by being a part of an advocacy group, you know, I'm a little less rigid. Okay. Right. And when it comes to that, why are the traditions so rigid? Am I allowed to ask that question? Sure. I, you want to answer? Or do you want me? Well, you've been around much longer than <laughs> I have. <laughs> well, you know, one of the things is, uh, you know, we have to protect um, the environment of a meeting for the person who comes behind me. Right. So okay. if, you know, if I'm allow if I allow almost anything to happen in a 12-step recovery meeting, uh, then I open that meeting up to possibly, you know, changing what has worked for the thousands that have already gone before them. So the, what the traditions do, you know, it protects us from the internal and external forces that would destroy uh, a 12-step recovery community. I'm not sure, like, what you mean by, like, what would hurt well, I mean, I, you know, people who, um, I mean, um, there's a tradition that so- talks about, you know, um, outside issues, right? And, not bringing that in. Right, not bringing that in. Uh, you know, uh, somebody says um, they support a particular party. Okay, Polit- like right. a political party. Political party, right? So, you know, um, the... Could be anything. Yes. AA supports this person, and then people who don't support that person, then they all say, well, you know, we're not, you know, I'm not going to AA because they support candidate X, or I'm going to go because they support candidate X. So what we say, what our traditions speak to, um, that's... Leaves that outside. Leaves that outside. Okay, I understand that. The other thing is, you know, fully self-supporting. You know, people give you money, they want to direct you know, the, the wording uh, okay. and the direction of the program. So what we say, we say, no, we don't take money from outside sources. We are fully self-supporting through our own contributions. We ask uh, members of our community to support the programs. Uh, no strings attached. Part of. Yes. So you have, you know, and with that comes a certain level of freedom. You know, to speak our mind, okay. you know, uh, to, to take our stand, you know, uh, stand, you know, our flag in the ground in terms of, you know, what we believe in, you know, and not what somebody else's believes in. You know, um, one of the things that's in that tradition, you know, it says it doesn't speak to uh, any other program. It just speaks to our program. You know, it support. It says that, you know, there may be other ways that a person you know, can find recovery, but as far, as we speak our program, this is what we do. So, you know, by having those traditions in place and adhering to those traditions, we don't fall in 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 a uh, quagmire of you know where you guys are are this or you guys are that. We know exactly who we are. Would you say that you are an anomaly or the norm? A lot of times, people who find recovery want to get behind some kind of a cause and it's generally the cause of helping people find recovery. Sure. So people generally find that service work within the recovery community um, of their 12 step choosing. But a lot of times people either start working in the field, volunteering in the field of recovery and substance use and treatment and that sort of thing to give back in a different way. So, yeah. So, and and it can be, for some people, um, 
this is what saved their life. Okay. Right. This is what, you know, this is their family. This is their community. Um, their children don't know or of them being any other way but, you know, clean or sober. Um, their family members, you know, recognize them as people that, you know, you would want to be executives of your estate now. And I think that from time to time, those who are rigid and want to protect what we have, you know, see that, you know, see that as a threat if they open it up to too many things. Okay. You know, um, you know, you can't, we can't service everybody. Sure. Right. And that's a part of that tradition. It speaks to that, that 10th tradition. It speaks to that, you know, you know, we might not be for everybody. Okay. But, we but have, everybody's welcome. But everybody's welcome. And that's a... I mean, if you think about it, I, I realize now from having uh, everyone welcome and then not having any financial backing from certain people and drugs not caring what race or creed or color you are, you know, or anything like that you are, that you can have this mixing pot. Yes. And it's, it's, it's quite beautiful. Absolutely. It's, uh, you know, the way I, the service structure for, um, you know, 12-step programs, it's, uh, you know, it's a uh, inverted uh, um, triangle. Okay. Right, where um, the um, members themselves are the individuals who make the decisions. And, you know, and we, you know, we point it down to, um, you know, the, our um, um, chief executive officer and our board of directors, um, for the 12-step community, and we're the ones that make the decisions. We're the ones that, that write the books. We're the ones that, you know, if there's anything that needs to be discussed or changed, we do it, you know, um, by all members having a say. We, hmm. we like to say there's no big I's or U's. Of course, there are people in the community that would dispute that. You know, I've been clean longer than you've been hmm. alive. <laughs> Did I just say that? Yes. <laughs> I've been clean longer than I've been, you know, you've been alive. But in the truest sense sure. you know, of, a, of a recovery, 12-step recovery program, there aren't any uh, big I's and U's. It's just the program. The mm -hmm. program in its purest form you know, works perfectly, you know, but, you know, being human beings and imperfect, you know, we can kind of mess Every, it up. Everything has a, a flaw. Yes. Hashtag humble. Yeah, there you go. So kind of switch a little bit back to you specifically. Uh -huh. um, what year did you come to Vegas? I came to Vegas in 2010. And that that's when you started your advocacy. advocacy yeah. How did that come about? I, I retired from uh, U.S. Postal Service. I admit, I've been looking to be in, becoming a mailman lately. <laughs> Watch out for the dogs. Actually, on the way over here, I was thinking that I need to meet somebody who has done it. So Stop that, it. I swear to God. So that I can, because there's tests you have to take. Yes. They're really hard. and Most people don't get over a 70. You know what I'm talking about. Uh, yes. I have, yes. have it on my phone right now. I, this was not an accident. See? You know, serendipity. Um, <laughs> Anyways, you were a you I were was a mailman. Mail. I retired from the post office in um, 2009. Okay. Right. I met my wife uh, in 1998 at a, at a world convention, and she lived out here out west. Mm -hmm. And she said when I was eligible to retire, she wanted to move out west. Now, I don't know if that was pillow talk or <laughs> what, but, you know, I, I don't remember you said yes. That. Yes, I yes, said yes. Apparently you did. And so we packed up our truck like the Beverly Hillbillies and we moved out here to Las Vegas. We stopped in Louisiana for a while, which is interesting because I, I was in Louisiana for about nine months with uh, my four grandchildren. I have nine now. And, um, wow. you know, I was going to, to, to recovery meetings 
in Louisiana. And, you know, that's the beauty of, of those. Uh, you talk about the difference between now and then, right? There were meetings there. I, I could just plug in. You know, I brought my book. They did it different. They had a little bit more of a Cajun twang to it. Sure. Uh, but um, I was able to plug in there. And then when I moved here, I was able to plug in. And, you know, I got with the uh, founder of the Foundation of Recu- for Recovery, uh, Mr. Stuart Smith. And uh, I got with his uh, his uh, uh, longtime friend, um, you know, Heidi Gustafson and Gustafson. Right. And Heidi and I, uh, you know, started working together. She was an advocate at the time. And she said that she was going out and we were doing presentations. And I was like, well, I don't have anything to do right now. And so I started doing presentations. So I started going out and it was a program called Parents You Mattered. Okay. Right. And that at the time, uh, the foundation was the uh, was the Nevada partner for uh, partnership for drug free America. And that was one of their presentations. So I was I was going out to sheriffs. I was going out to schools. I was going out to all kinds of organizations doing presentations, talking about, you know, how parents matter in um, in the lives of the children mm-hmm. and, you know, and the influence that they can have. You know, and turning this um, and and keeping them uh, children from using drugs because a lot of the science talks about you know if you can keep them from using at a certain age, um, they'll um, there's a good chance that they won't. What age? What age group are they? Um, don't quote you know don't Google me whoever's listening to this, but <laughs> usually if you can get them out of the teens without them using drugs, then they you know they stand a good chance of, of of not using drugs or not acquiring a drug habit. So there's a there's a time frame for the parents, you know, to put their input in and you know and to be a, a part of their children's lives and to ask questions and to um, be proactive in that you know in that arena, and that's what we were talking about that you matter. You know, of course, the friends matter, but you matter also. So it was parent empowerment then. Absolutely. Absolutely. We were we were talking to groups um, and it, it was um, it was the first time I was had been doing advocacy. So, um, you know, I was excited about it. I, you know, I had been a person who had uh, talked, you know, before to recovery communities and um, and recovery meetings Um but this was the first time I was talking to a group of people um, that weren't people who were, had a, um, a drug problem like myself. So this is a totally different group. And what I started to do is I started to la- learn um, different language, uh, language that was empowering language, you know. Um, For example? Uh, I identify myself today as a person in long-term recovery. As opposed to? Uh, as opposed to, uh, hi, this is Alvin, and I'm an addict. Okay. Right, because what um, um, it's been um, well documented um, through a group called Faces and Voices of Recovery. They did a, a study, and sure. they do training, and, and one of the things that they find, they found is that when people identify themselves, as a person in long-term recovery, uh, that that kind of uh, helps Reduces people. Stigma. Yeah, look at the the individuals who are sharing the message differently. Yeah. Um, then you can, you know, then you this can positive, positive reinforcement. Right. You know, they, they you know, their mind is still open to whatever you're you're getting ready to share. So, what are the things that you think of when you hear "I'm a recovering addict"? Just somebody. I mean, Anybody. me personally, immediately? I mean, what are some of the things you think that people would think of if maybe you were at a gas station and you were sharing a story with somebody? 
I mean, are you asking you me you. personally? Yeah. Okay, I mean, so I'm at a gas station, right? <laughs> I'm pumping the gas. I say hello to, let's Hi, call him Carl. Okay. Mm-hmm. At the next pump, I'm like, how are you doing, Carl? He said, good. I just came from a meeting. Uh, I'm an addict. My immediate thing would be like, okay, later. <laughs> like, I mean, I don't judge. Cool story, bro. <laughs> yeah. I think other people would be different. So absolutely, absolutely. So you know, and what it what it will allow because people have their own uh, experiences with people who may have or have know somebody who've had a, a negative experience with a person, you know, an addiction, if an you, active addiction. If you uh, it, the other side of the coin, if I was next to the pump with Carl and he was like, I'm a person in long term recovery, I kind of would have a little bit different reaction of, hmm, he sounds a little bit, I don't know, positive and maybe he, he takes it more serious. Mean, maybe not, but he's obviously taken, uh, he's, ma- he's, he's made the effort. Foundation. He's made an effort to at least change the language to a more positive right. outlook. So, I mean. When you think of recovering addict, you immediately, your mind immediately goes to addict. So you think about what were like the things that had happened to an What do I know about addicts? What the bad yeah. things, right? Yeah. Yes. It was sort of the yeah. bad. And so when we look at somebody in long-term recovery, it's talking about it's a difference self-sustaining, someone's, someone's right? Someone who's still quality sick and someone who's getting better. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. and so, I don't know if that's correct, but. Well, what we're trying to do is we're trying to shift the, that, that narrative for, for those of us who are, are advocates who get an opportunity to speak to people outside of our respective 12-step recovery meetings so that when I talk to you, um, if I'm, for example, working with the Recovery Pack, um, which is a uh, nonpartisan uh, political action committee. If I'm working with them, uh, then uh, when a person, you know, wants to talk to me about, you know, recovery, uh, you know, it's like, um, well, what do you know about recovery? I say, well, I'm a person in long-term recovery. You know, and I've been, you know, I've been clean for X amount of years. You know, and you fill in the blank in terms of your years. Then that person look, you know, um, from what our evidence shows people look at you different or at least give you an opportunity to share what, you know, your story or, you know, listen to, you know, the information that you're trying to get across. Because I want them to know that I'm, a, you know, that, you know, I've had a problem, that I'm in recovery. But I also want them to hear the message that I'm trying to deliver. And sometimes, you know, people will close you down if they identify you know, addict with something um, that's, you know, from their past. Negative, yeah. yeah. So a lot of what we talk about is reducing stigma, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and what you're saying is with, with language is, is one way to reduce that stigma. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that, like, is it up to, to the person in recovery to change that language and, and their own personal stigma towards someone else? Or is, it, is, is the goal to try to change people's view towards someone in recovery? You understand what I'm saying? So an example that has nothing to do with what you're asking, but <laughs> it came to mind. So I have a lot of tattoos, sure. which a lot of people do. And when you look at people who generally have a lot of tattoos, you're like, oh, they must be X, a Y, sailor. and Z. And I love to prove them wrong through advocacy and sure. like that I'm a good person, that I have good values, not necessarily telling them that, but showing them that. And so I think that uh, mirrors what the language of recovery is and showing and being presentable and showing that you uh, are a good person and that you have overcome obstacles. But I I guess my question is, is who's responsible for making that change? Is it the person in recovery or 
do does the rest of the world have to kind of get over what the word addict means? Well, you know, if if I look at, you know, what we're doing here as a matter of life or death. Sure. Uh, then, you know, then I believe that for me that I have to make sure that what I'm saying, what I'm doing conveys the message that I want to get across. Because, see, there's a message Perfect answer. that I want to get across. It's not, the, you know, they, they might not have a message to give to me, mm-hmm. right? Usually when I come to an event, when I approach an individual, of, you know, in conversation about recovery or something that's related to recovery, uh, you know, trying to help reduce the stigma, I'm trying to get the message across to that individual uh, that the information that I'm getting ready, that I'm going to give you uh, is information that is a part of my experience. The person that you're seeing here now, you know, was that was that person that you might see on TV? Was that person that you might hear about on the radio or see on and CNN? You know, who was arrested somewhere, or I might be a statistic, one of the of the statistics that was arrested, or you know, people sure. that are in treatment. But look what I am doing now. So what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to marshal forces and resources, mm-hmm. right? You know, to help those who are you know in the middle of their addiction right now. And you know, I'm trying not to get caught up in whether or not, you know, they should, you know, be open to what I'm sharing with you yeah. as opposed to me uh, finding a way to, you know, start the conversation, mm. right? Because that's what we want. We want to start the conversation. Mm-hmm. It's it's like door-to-door salesmen. Okay. It's that first initial pitch of are people going to listen to my story and how can I come off as being human and have a heart and show them that uh, recovery is possible right away. Right. And you, and what you'll see now, and, you know, uh, one of the things you, going back to the question you asked about how is it different now, what you'll see is you'll see different groups of people that are advocates outside of the 12-step recovery community. When I got clean, there weren't as many. Okay. Right. You know, now, um, last week, um, we went to an event uh, here in Las Vegas Call Black Monday. It was sponsored was by um, was the there group. Too. Uh, There's no hero in heroin. Yeah, you know, and, and the father, in uh, the guy who's you know one of the founders Joseph of Engel. our local group, Joseph Engel. You know, he was a father. He was a parent of a child who had died as a result of you know his son's addiction. And you know, so what we're trying to do now is groups like that when they come along. You know, we want to, you know, to use those groups. We want to piggyback. Everybody's going to be piggybacking on each other and providing that information. And we don't want to get caught down, cut, you know, get caught up in the language of, oh, yeah, that's the, the thing where they have all those junkies over there. No, we're, we're people in long-term recovery. Yeah, period. Period. And, you know, we use that. I think just about every speaker that came up, you know, used recovery language. You know, talking about, you know, I'm a person in long-term recovery. And so what it does, it, you know, helps people to understand that, you know, um, that I'm a father, that I'm a brother, um, that I'm an uncle. Um, You know, I'm your next-door neighbor. I'm the guy that drives your bus, right? And, you know, as a result of that, then we can get some movement and get some traction because it's not just, you know, finding treatment. It's, you know, it's across the scope. How do we continue to help those you know, who are, you know, still caught up in it. You know, how do we reduce uh, not only just the stigma, but are we talking about, you know, um, uh, sentencing guidelines or 
Are we trying to reach those thousands who are, you know, are still um, the casualties of the war on drugs? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not, it's no longer something, you know, we're no longer hiding in the shadows. And one of the ways that helps us uh, come out of the shadows is, you know, how do you talk to people? Right. You know, how do we, how did you learn to talk to people? Um, because I, I went to training, you know, I, I, you know, I went to training as a peer recovery coach, you know, on the foundation for recovery, which is locally here in Las Vegas. Um, they have training for people who want to be peer recovery coaches. That's the, that's another movement that's not connected to any 12 step recovery program, but it is an advocacy movement. So Mm -hmm. we're, we're having these movements come along because we, what we realize is that, you know, the it's the people who are in recovery that are going to be the ones that are going to make the movement, you know, work. You know, we, I mean, and we evolve and in, 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 indeed, you know, going up, talking to politicians, um, you know, the drug czars and, you know, and the National Association of, you know, SAMHSA and all those national organizations. Yeah, they're great organizations. Um, but it's going to be the, you know, the, the boots on the ground, the people who are going to be advocates, you know, within their own anonymity that are going to get the job done. Nobody else is going to do it for them. Back to your story again. <laughs> okay. So you, you go from Washington, you move here, you, you, uh, get in, you retire as a mailman, mm-hmm. uh, you get involved with the Foundation for Recovery, mm-hmm. and you start doing these presentations right. for uh, parents. Parents. And then... What does that evolve, uh, evolve into next? Because um, you seem really good at what you're doing. Uh, I uh, thank you. I uh, started. Uh, um, I started working for uh, a treatment facility, uh, Las Vegas Recovery Center. Uh, I got involved with uh, uh, with them. Uh, started working with clients there. Um, got promoted to working with the alumni association there. Because this is what I'm, I'm curious about the alumni stuff, right? And, and why that is important to right to uh, keep. Uh, in contact, because what I'm guessing, alumni, what you're talking about is people that have finished the program. Finished the program at, at the treatment center where I work. Yeah. You know, and, and part of it is um, um, there's there's strength in numbers. Okay. All right. Um, you know, we, we, we talk about um, changing people, places, and things. Um, prior to coming to uh, recovery, you know, the people... Uh, that I would hang out with would be some of the people that I would use, you know, use drugs with and drink with. And so when I became a member, uh, when I started on my recovery journey, mm-hmm. right, I had to change, you know, the groups of people I hung out with. Um, and what we do in our alumni association is that we, you know, it's like a soft landing. You know, I'm in treatment. Then I step down to maybe some kind of outpatient program, and it's almost like an aftercare. You know, we come in, you know, you recognize those people. You don't have to go to a room. And, you know, because sometimes 12-step recovery meetings can be a bit intimidating for new people. But they come in, they see the same face. They see my smiling face mm-hmm. <laughs> every week. You know, we talk about things. We laugh. Uh, we don't have the rigidness of, uh, of some of the 12-step recovery meetings. Um, not that, you know, that's bad, but, you know, what it allows those people to do in those circumstances. Like you said, it's a soft transition. It's a soft transition. So they can come in, you know, because the, the real work begins whenever, when somebody leaves treatment. And is right? out of the IOP. And- yes. Yes. That and they person, don't have somebody holding their hand. Right. So, you know, the opportunity for me to, to make a choice. You know, each and every day that's not, that's a, a positive choice, a, a choice. And outside where I, of a controlled environment. Mm-hmm. Where I choose recovery, right? 
You know, and this is what I, one of the things that I tell them. You, you have to make a choice every day to choose recovery. You have to choose, make a choice every day to choose your freedom over the enslavement of whatever your addiction is. What are some of the activities that you have in the alumni groups? Oh, we we do a lot of stuff. <laughs> we you know we do softball, we have kickball, we have um, pancake breakfast, we go hiking. Um, you know, those are some of the things. How long does somebody stay in, in involved with the alumni usually? I mean, well, years and years, or we have some people that have been there for um, for quite some time, but usually, sometimes they, what they do is they'll cycle out. Okay. You know, we, we, we have groups of people that come in. Somebody comes out of our treatment facility. They're new. They're fresh. They're kind of wide-eyed. They come to the Alumni Association. And we're, you know, what I'm telling them is, you know, go to your, you know, find the 12-step recovery community. Find a tribe. You know, don't let this be the only, only meeting that you're coming to where people are trying to do the same thing that you're trying to do one day at a time. And as a result of that, sometimes we'll find people to find their own tribe. And, you know, I'm still in touch with them, and they'll come back to support, but they're not, they don't regularly show up. Mm-hmm. So correct me if I'm wrong, but how do you feel uh, being a recovery advocate is helping with decriminalization? There we go. Well, what we're doing is we're working um, – me personally, as an advocate, you know, I'm working with uh, Recovery PAC, mm-hmm. you know, the nonpartisan uh, to change uh, recovery advocacy group, right? To change the legislation that benefits people in in, in recovery. Uh, one of the things that I I want to see is decriminalization. Um, I want um, to ban the box. You know, the, what, the is, box. what is this box? The box is the what felony is this box. box. The box is the, is the box on applications that you have to check if you have a felony okay. from the beginning, mm. you know, of of the um, job application process, right? Not that a person doesn't get an opportunity to ask a person about um, if they have, you know, uh, if they have a criminal background or a felony, but uh, you know what the ban the box movement is, you know, uh, you know, allow a person, you know, to be at least get their on his merits right yeah. you know i'm you know i'm qualified in all these areas but if you see the box checked then you know it becomes file 13 in the trash so what the band of box movement is is that we you know there's no box to check so that's a question that once a person has gotten through that process and met with you know whoever the prospective employer is the employer gets to ask that question in person and the person gets to answer yeah. you know whatever the questions are uh, about their History and for a lot of us uh, in recovery, um, people who are in recovery, you know, recovering addicts, um, you know, there are felonies in our background. There are um, drug charges in our background, um, you know, from our drug use, and so um, you know, we don't get a chance to move ahead because that box prevents people from having uh, opportunities. It's like a big no stamp. Yes, it's Um, like boom. Judging a book by its cover. Absolutely. And the other thing, too, is um, um, decriminalization. Uh, you know, as we continue to legalize marijuana state through state through state, and, you know, how do you keep the people that you convicted for marijuana charges in jail? Agreed. Yeah. So, you know. How or why? why Both. How and why? <laughs> Both. Why is that? You know, why, you know, why aren't those people automatically in some states are doing that? So those are the kind of things that we want to talk to our state legislature, legislators about is that, you know, um, 
you know, why is this, you know, if you're if marijuana is legal in Nevada, you know, why aren't the people who are serving time in prison for marijuana possession still in jail? Mm-hmm. We should be we should have a mechanism to have those people released, you know, um, for, based on for the those, situation. Based on the situation, each yeah. situation is going to be different. Yeah. Do you think people who are in long term recovery have the upper hand in talking to legislature if they've been through that situation? Like, do you think that legislature may hear it from somebody who's in long-term recovery, who successfully um, reestablished their life that had been through that situation at some point in time in their life? Do you think that it would be impactful? Absolutely. Um, You know, because not, you know, everybody doesn't know somebody, you know, that's in recovery, Right. They may, you know, they may have, they may know people who um, have a drug problem. You, you know, you read about it, you hear about it on the news. But do, have I met somebody who's you know, in long-term recovery? Have I met a Chelsea who comes up, you know, uh, and stands before a microphone and talks to me about, you know, some pending legislation? You know, it's taking the time out of whatever their schedule is to come up here, you know, uh, on our own dime. Uh, to talk about, you know, um, what we want for the recovery community. And that's that's where it, you know, the rubber meets the road. You know, um, the squeaky wheel. The squeaky wheel gets the oil or something? Yeah, the squeaky wheel gets the oil. It's something. Uh, yes, um, that's it. Squeaky wheel gets the oil. The so problem the child person, gets all the attention. All right. So the person that, you know, that comes to speak out, you know, in terms of, you know, of, of their particular issue, I mean, there's. Closed mouths don't get fed. My closed mouth. Oh man, here we Which go. Which is the opposite of the squeaky wheel. Yeah. Yes. So we we you know we 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 have to speak, you know, to those who are in the position to make the decisions. You yeah. know, you know, um, as many there, there are thousands and thousands of people in recovery here in the community of Las Vegas, uh, but you know they you know they don't come out as much as I would like for them to do to come out. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to, you know, get the word out that, you know, you have to be an advocate for these things. You know, just going to your meeting, you know, that's you know, your personal recovery. But what happens, you know, for those who are coming behind you, you know, that you know, how are we helping them? And it used to be en- you know, it used to be enough. It used to be enough. To just change yourself. Just to mm. change, you know, and, you know, be there, you know, and be available. And I thought that way for myself for many years, right? But, you know, now I understand if we're going to lick this problem, we got people who are interested. We got people who are, uh, who want to be on the front lines with us, who want to link arms with us, you know, well, let's link arms with them, you know, and move forward and take this, um, the recovery movement to the next phase. Pave the road. Absolutely. Um, do you do you find that you have any criticisms with uh, the Kroger community at all? Things that you'd like to change or like to be changed? I like want to answer these questions. Go ahead. You're allowed to. <laughs> I think I find for me, people like Alvin had already mentioned, there's so many people that are just, they stay in their lane per se. They stay in their respected communities and they don't feel as though they might have a voice to help the larger community or they don't have time to help the larger community. And there's always time to make change and there's always change to make time. Yes. You, you find, <laughs> yeah, I got it. <laughs> you, you, you know, a lot of times when people come into recovery, I know myself included, um, you know, you, you feel like you've missed, there's something missing or 
you're trying to catch up, you know, you're trying to, you know, if you have children, you know, the time that you spent away, if you're, if you didn't finish school, you know, trying to finish school, um, um, you know, trying to get a job, um, you know, and, you know, now you're a responsible member of the family. And so there are other, you know, requests that are made from you that your family has you back. So, you know, so am I going to now take that time and go out and, you know, and, 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 and help others? Or am I going to, you know, try to develop what I have here now? And it's a, it's a, it's a question of balance, Right, and you just fear if you're, you know, not uh, helping others. You know how how does this movement go forward? You know how okay. you know now is the time. Now is the, I believe the time to strike while the iron is hot. You know people are 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 willing to help us. Why? Why do you think the iron's hot right now? I mean, I, I believe you. I I've seen it. It's kind of why I'm doing this podcast uh, too. Is because I, I have seen an increase in uh, I wouldn't call it popularity, but Recovery is cool. Let's Advocacy just put it on the table. Recovery well, is cool. The recovery is cool, uh, but the, you know, when you start, you, you know, when you start looking at um, the number of people who are dying from overdoses, you know, being more than dying from car crashes, um, it's uh, it's sobering. And it's so prevalent in the media. Yeah, yeah. It's always yeah. blaring in our face. Yeah, and so you know, people are you know, it's you know, it's just not. It's almost like um, ten, twenty, thirty years ago, it was maybe over thirty years ago. Um, a person would get drunk, he would um, get pulled over, police would say, "Listen, you know, just park your car, go call somebody to come get it," and then you know, some others got mad, sure. and that changed the the culture. You know, or what it meant to drive drunk or drive under the influence. And now you better not, you know, no. get in the car, you know, under the influence, right? And the same, and conversely, um, with the recovery movement now, you know, uh, families are, are seeing, you know, their, their kids or their neighbor's kids or the kid from the high school. So it's, you know, communities, you know, now are seeing the impact you know, people are no longer saying uh, things like, um, well, John had a heart attack. No, um, John died from an overdose of fentanyl, mm -hmm. right? Um, Tom Petty uh, just died um, last year. Two years ago. Two years ago. And his family came out and announced it, you know, what he had died from. He, mm -hmm. he had died from an overdose of fentanyl and other prescription medication. You know, it was an accidental overdose. So no longer. I didn't know that. Yeah. I love the heartbreakers. Yeah. I have a Tom Petty tattoo-ish. Ish. Ish. So it's not, it's not any, you know, it's not some, you know, people are, are you know, standing up and speaking uh, their truth about their family member, about their community, about the numbers of people who are, who are, who are dying as a result of, you know, a drug overdoses. And it's got the, the attention and, um, you know, some communities have been pushing back against the Narcan, which is the, you know, overdose yeah. medication that is given out. And why uh, would they be pushing? Back well, on? we had one uh, one governor, one state, you know, he said that, you know, it was it would uh, make people want to use drugs. And and um, <laughs> and that's why they would use it. And it so like a like a get out of jail free card. Yeah, it's considered harm reduction techniques. So it's like condoms and safe sex it's okay. like 
kind of along those same lines. Like a heroin condom. Yeah, essentially, but... Uh, I guess if, one condom. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I don't know about... That. Yeah, I, I, yes. You yes. always said it. I did. <laughs> but if, the, if it's coupled with education and support and, uh, and advocacy, um, you know, it saves lives, but also could be a great opportunity for change. So, so what, it, what it points to is that, you know, is that the movement from, you know, the moral dilemma or moral um, deficiency to the disease model. Okay. Right. And so we're, we're trying, you know, we're not completely there, but you're seeing more and more people are, you know, are embracing it as a disease as opposed to moral deficiency. So the people that are, you know, that aren't for um, something like a Narcan, mm-hmm. right, which is, you know, which saves lives. The evidence is clear. Yeah, that it saves lives, right? But if you're stuck in that place where you have, where you think it's a moral, um, you know, it's a, a thing of uh, willpower, and you know, it's a moral dilemma. You know, they they should just do the right thing. They should just stop drugs, stop using the drugs. Um, then you will not be an advocate for um, Narcan or harm reduction. But if you look at it as a disease, you know, like a person has a disease, you know, it's an epipen. Yeah. Yes. And yes. Yes. And so, and that's what we, that's what we're finding now. And this is why language is important. Going back to language, mm-hmm. language is important as we talk to people, you know, who have no understanding. I mean, the three of us sitting here, we have more than enough understanding. But outside of the door of this podcast, there are thousands of people that don't have a clue, and we have to be able to reach them. And one of the ways that we reach them is through our language. And guess what? There are so many people listening right this second. I hope so. Oh, they are. <laughs> I have faith. I Along those same lines, there is a trend in recovery communities uh, throughout the country. So generally, the trends start in the East Coast and make their way down to the West. And so we've seen for many years, there have been recovery movements taking place throughout the country that have trickled into the West Coast. And we're starting to see them now to make recovery cool. But some of those things are recovery industries, recovery cafes, people in recovery creating a cafe to do fun things with communities of like-minded people. We've seen recovery clubhouses. There are so many ways that people can create recovery within their own agencies or even on their own without necessarily having to build um, infrastructure just by getting people together who believe in recovery and want to make change and have a safe place to be. So we're seeing a lot more, but not enough yet. How do you see the future of recovery? What would you like to see? Here's your crystal ball. Yeah. I don't think we go back. I think we move forward. I think, you know, um, from time to time we may, we may move sideways, you know, when, when we hit some headwind, but I don't think we move back. I think that um, that uh, some of the the organizations, the advocacy groups that are propping up all over the country, are you know won't let it happen. You know, I think that um, you know as long as there are people who are unfortunately 
who are suffering from addiction, and as long as there are families that are suffering from addiction and they recognize that, you know, it's a disease and that they can that they have advocate partners and can form a coalition to get help for their families and their children, I don't think people will ever go back. It might not move as fast as I want it to move, but I don't think we go back. I think the recovery movement now is not just a national movement. It's not less a local movement. It's an international movement. You know, one of the fastest global, growing, if you will. Yes, mm. one of the fastest growing groups outside of the United States is in the country of Iran. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they have the more. They have more outside of the United States. They have more twelve-step NA meeting groups than any other country in the world. Support. Yeah, and they have, you know, and so uh, you're seeing that grow. Um, I went to a convention and I saw um, people from Russia at the convention. They'd come all the way here to Philadelphia in the United States for a recovery convention. So I, I don't think it's going back. The genie is out of the bottle. You know, that's, you know, well, you know, you're, either you're growing or, or, you're, you're, or you're dying. You can't sure. unlearn. Yeah, so I think we're, I think we're going to continue to grow. Um, you know, like I said, maybe there, there may be some years where we'll just be kind of mocking, you know, walking in place. But, I, you know, I think we're moving forward. Do you have to be in recovery no, to be an advocate for no, recovery? No, you'll, you'll find there are many organizations around uh, that are working, um, you know, with people who aren't in recovery and who are providing services, who are providing help. You know, um, you'll just have to find them. You know, if you, you know, you look for them, you'll find them. So if you're a family member, you're an advocate. If you're an ally, you're an advocate. Absolutely. If you're Chris, you're not an advocate. No, No, you are. I'm going to cut that out. Uh, The second question is kind of a big one uh, and maybe controversial, but I'm going to ask it anyways. Okay. Um, Just because of the history you have in in, in advocacy and service. Um, So a lot of the stuff that you were talking about earlier about it crossing the tracks, right? right. It tends, seems to me to be a lot more um, pharmaceutical right. in nature. Do you feel like that's a hard battle with like a, with pharmaceutical companies as opposed to somebody, I don't know, that doesn't have billions of dollars? Mm, mm, mm. I told you it was a rough one. Change can come in numbers. Too. Sure. Yeah, I think it's a tough one. You know, incremental change, right? Um, like big tobacco, right? Remember big tobacco and you know uh, how they had a stranglehold on, you know, on, on smoking and smoking was everywhere. And now, uh, people that smoke I don't, are you know are regulated to a certain segment in a certain place. Yeah, go to your corner. Yeah, you know, go outside. Shame. You don't you you know you, there are very few places except for here in Las Vegas and their casinos. Right. Very few places that you can smoke in the United States now, uh, and that wasn't the case. You used to be able to smoke on planes. I saw an old movie where a doctor was in there uh, treating a patient and smoking at the same time. It's an old on movie. the plane. No, on the oh. it's a movie. It was a movie. The doctor was yeah. treating a patient and he was smoking while he was you know right operating. Up, yeah, wasn't operating, but he was yeah. So uh, so scalpel, please. <laughs> it was. It was so funny, but, you know, that's where we were. Um, you know, it's just, you know, once that tide comes 
you know, the wall of denial, you know, just kind of starts flushing over it. And next thing you know, it goes over. And like you said, there's no going back. There's no going back. There's no going back. So I think that um, um, Big Farm will find a way. You know, to to you know, make their money and make quite a few, uh, quite a, quite a bit of money, and so uh, off of uh, you know the opioid crisis, and so I think that um, the time has come. States, uh, I think Nevada is is uh, gearing up to sue uh, pharmaceutical companies as we speak. It was something that was in the news the other day. So uh, I think that uh, that tide is starting to turn. A little bit. And with those small increments of change, there has been legislature passed, I think it was last year, during the session where individuals who are seeking or drug seeking, they have to, uh, all computers within Las Vegas or maybe the state of Nevada have to speak to each other to say this person is drug seeking and that way people don't overprescribe. Sure. Uh, any lasting thoughts? What would you like to leave the audience with? The movement is happening. Okay. Right. You know, um, the recovery movement is just that. It's a movement. It's not going to, you know, hopefully um, uh, it won't run out of steam. Uh, more and peop- more people are coming on board. Um, you know, whatever differences you may have. You know, with um, why it's an epidemic now, and it wasn't an epidemic. You know, when black and brown were were you know were dying, or when black and brown were going to prison. Um, yeah, that's a conversation you can have. You know, uh, intellectual conversation. Sure. Uh, but you have to get over it and yeah. have to move along, and we have to develop the coalitions with the people who are willing to develop the coalitions. You know, um, I think a minute ago I talked about the iron being hot, you know, and we have to strike now. And if we allow ourselves to be divided, you know, on along lines of, you know, why didn't you help me back then, you know, as opposed to what we're doing now, how should I get a bigger piece of the pie? You know, just get some pie. Get some pie. Get some mm. pie. What pie, ha- pancakes. Jeez. What happens when 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 you do strike with that hot iron? Uh the the um what's the goal? Um, well, you get um, you get funding for saving uh, lives, right? Yeah, yeah. You you get funding to to do outreach. You get funding for places like uh, for the uh, No Hero on Heroin. You get funding for the Foundation for Recovery. You get funding for uh, Recovery Pack. You get funding for these organizations. Any for recovery podcast even. Re- Ooh, people cannot watch. Day after day after day after day, you know, of, of the crisis that this, fa- that this country faces with drug addiction and not be willing to want to do something. So, um, you know, I think something will happen. But, you, you know, you have to, um, as Adam Clayton Fowles said, uh, keep the faith. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Yeah. And with that, thank you, Elvin. All right. Thank you, It was Alvin. a pleasure. You did great. Thank you, brother. Let's mm-hmm. go eat some pancakes. Right. No.
subscribe and listen to us on all the major streaming platforms and go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating. Follow us on social media at Recover Everything and go to our website, recovereverything.com.